The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Lawfare Archive. This is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for July 24th, 2021. Thus far, 2021 has seen a number of high-profile incidents in the world of cybersecurity. Earlier this month, the Russian hacking group R-Evil launched a debilitating ransomware attack on Kaseya VSA that affected businesses and organizations around the world. And at the beginning of this week, the U.S. and its allies accused China of a massive cyber espionage campaign including the Microsoft Exchange hack. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to November 2018, when John Carlin, Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's National Security Division from April 2014 to October 2016, and the current Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General, sat down with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes. They discussed the book Carlin wrote with Garrett Graff, Dawn of the Code War. Lawfare listeners will hear Carlin discuss how the U.S. government engages with cyber threats, specifically those coming from China and Russia, which allows a better understanding of how the U.S. government may respond to some of the more recent attacks. John, I'm excited to talk to you about Dawn of the Code War, but before we turn to that, I would be remiss if I didn't start uh, you're by you're one of two people, to my knowledge, who has both run the National Security Division of Just, of the Justice Department and served as Chief of Staff to Bob Mueller. I'll do a quick correction because I believe there are three. Because Ken Weinstein, Lisa Monaco, and I all served as both Chief of Staff to Director Mueller and head of the National Security Division. You know, I forgot that Ken had also served as Chief of Staff to Bob Mueller. So. <laughs> Uh, fair enough. So it's still a it's still a very small group of people, and I want to ask you first of all about the mood in your former division at Justice. You must be in touch with a lot of people. It's a s- difficult time for the Justice Department. So how are people holding up? It's a fantastic group of prosecutors who are motivated by, uh, by mission, like Bob Mueller himself, and so. I think there's a lot of right now discord between uh, between parties, but the folks in that division are focused on those who want to harm us as Americans. So when you get up in the morning and your job is to protect innocent civilians from being killed in terrorist attacks, and you know the stakes of getting that right, you stay motivated. And similarly, uh, there was an initiative that we can talk about a little bit more later that really springs from much of what we talk about uh, in the book in terms of the threat we've been seeing from in cyberspace from China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. And you look back about two weeks ago now to the initiative that the Justice Department announced to crack down on Chinese economic espionage until the behavior changes. That's the sort of uh, threat that gets those prosecutors and trial attorneys up in the morning. But surely amidst the business as usual, which is what you're describing in the counter, counterterrorism and the uh, counterintel space, it is not business completely as usual when the president is you know, publicly undermining the mission in important respects. And I'm, you know, I'm 
curious what the what the normally the intersection between the work of 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 the division and the sort of public politics, except when you have like Edward Snowden like events, is pretty near zero. And now it can't be near zero because you have the president out there publicly commenting on all kinds of pending matters. And so like I'm just interested, what does it do? Yeah, people are still motivated, get up in the morning, do their jobs. But it can't have no effect on the way people think about people think about what they're doing every day. Yeah, let's divide it into two things. So one are the prosecutors and trial attorneys, the law enforcement agents at the FBI, the intel analyst. Are they motivated and going to do their job no matter what type of crazy talk there is in the rest of Washington? Yes, I believe that they are. But that's different than the attacks on our institutions and the undermining of public confidence in those institutions. Undermining of public confidence in those institutions can affect your ability to develop cooperators, witnesses, foreign partnerships, and ultimately, it's a strength of our country and one of the reasons why our country is both envied and feared by authoritarian countries is because we've been able to carve out apolitical institutions. I mean, the Department of Justice is the envy of the world for that reason. So just like those agents and prosecutors are motivated to protect us from terrorists and those who would do us harm, we need people on both party, in both parties of good conscience to stand up and say it is utterly inappropriate to direct the Justice Department to not bring a prosecution for political purposes or vice versa. Your successor in that role as head of the National Security Division, is this somebody you look at and say, this is in the bipartisan tradition of leadership of that department? As in, should the average listener of this podcast think whatever's going on at the, uh, you know, between Matt Whitaker and, and the president, but with the Mueller investigation, the national security of the division of the Justice Department is in good hands, both at the career level, which you've already said, and at the political level? Yes. The uh, assistant attorney general now in charge of the National Security Division, John Demers, is someone uh, I've known for a long time, uh, dating back to law school, and worked with when I was at the FBI, and he served in the National Security Division under uh, one of those other Mueller protégés, Ken Weinstein. And he is someone who is dedicated to protecting the national security interests of the United States and not political. And if you look at the leadership below that of the National Security Division, it has stayed almost entirely in place, as it should be. And we've seen this. This will be the third administration now where there's been a continuity because national security professionals are not driven by party. Let's talk briefly about Bob Mueller, who shows up periodically throughout your book. You were his chief of staff, and you know he has gone on to play a role very different from the role in which uh, you served under him. How do you read, like, from having worked very closely with him, what is your read on uh, the state of play with, with respect to the investigation? You know, Ben, he's, he's a good example and tell some stories about it in the, in the book of not just a person who does his job with extraordinary competence. And when you meet him and work with him day in and day out, he's someone who seems like he sprang from the pages of a history book. He's someone who's utterly dedicated to the mission at hand, to trying to follow and solve uh, problems and facts and apply the law and has a humility about the application of the law. So that's him just in terms of being a competent individual heading this investigation. But there is also what he represents. And we talked about a little bit, and there is this uh, increasing rhetoric to try to turn the Justice Department partisan. He personifies and motivated people, not with uh, great speeches, but with the life that he led to dedicate themselves to a nonpartisan, mission-oriented Justice Department. And that dates back to his service as uh, volunteering to go into the Marines, where he ended up 
not just risking his life, but saving the lives of others. Something he, by the way, did not talk about. It was almost impossible to get him to talk about that time uh, in his life, but it had a great resonance for him. His pride in a Marine, being a Marine, he would talk about. To his time as a career uh, prosecutor, to the legend that I knew when I went to the Washington, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office as a line prosecutor. I know exactly what legend you're about <laughs> to say, but it's a, great, it's, a, it's a great story, so flesh it out. Yeah, so this is someone who had risen up to uh, something that required Senate confirmation and a presidential appointment to be the top official at the Justice Department in charge of all criminal prosecutions. He then left tried going to a private firm for a little bit, decided he hated it, missed the mission, and went back to be a line prosecutor doing the equivalent of state and local crimes in Washington, D.C., to be a homicide prosecutor because he'd always wanted to serve uh, in, that type of, in that type of job. And so when I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office, everyone knew about uh, uh, Bob Mueller, who was there trucking his uh, lit bag over to court and trying, trying homicides. Let's turn to the book. What is a code war? So I think now, just like the Cold War was not a traditional conflict, but was something that I think rightly was called a war that required dedicated will that was in a state of essentially low-intensity conflict and required a strategy to win, we are similarly now in an era of Cold War. There are uh, multiple countries committing low-intensity conflict operations against the United States, North Korea, Russia, Iran, and China. They have different tactics and strategies, but one of the reasons I wrote the book is I realized when I talked to boards of directors, to CEOs, to the general public right now, that much of what they think is science fiction and the possible threats that may come in the future have already happened. But those stories have not been told. You start the book with a story that is very connected to stories that we're used to hearing, right? So the post-9-11 radicalization stories, uh, only you treat it as a cyber story more than as a terrorism story. Talk to me about the relationship between the Code War and, you know, what we used to call the War on Terror, right? Or, you know, sort of global counterterrorism operations. Because as I was reading the introduction to the book, one of the things that it's trying to do, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong about the uh, literary aspiration here, is to tie these two things together and, and, you know, have the reader understand that he or she is reading the story of Anwar al-Awlaki and Adam Gadan, but reading it as a cyber story rather than, or as a cyber and terrorism story, rather than simply as a sort of next wave al-Qaeda story. So it's, I call it the blended threat. And what we're seeing now in the, in the cyber arena or in the Cold War arena is a new challenge or a new problem. And to me, the problem of terrorism and what we were seeing in cyber were increasingly starting to blend and conflate. And what's new is that companies are on the front lines of national security threats. And you think about the reforms that have taken place, billions of dollars, new departments and agencies, Director of National Intelligence, Department of Homeland Security, and the division I led at the Justice Department, the National Security Division, they were all designed to get better at fixing the problem that cost innocent lives on September 11th, and that is the failure to share information at speed and scale across the law enforcement and intelligence divide and with foreign partners. And we did get better at that, and we were able to disrupt Al-Qaeda 1.0 and its strategy of recruiting operatives who physically moved over to Afghanistan, Pakistan, were trained, vetted, deployed to try to commit attacks on the scale of uh, September 11th. But with Terrorism 2.0, the Islamic State and the Levant, it becomes a story about our technology. So just like Al-Qaeda used aviation, a Western innovation against us, we were seeing the Islamic State in the Levant or ISIS use social media and crowdsource 
terrorism. And at the tip of the spear of that campaign was a computer hacker. It was someone named Junaid Hussein, a British citizen who had been convicted and served time for computer hacking, became radicalized, moved to Raqqa, Syria. And what I start uh, in the book is a true case. And when I go around and talk to companies, it's not a risk that they're used to thinking about, but it's a real risk in today's blended world where what looks like a pure computer hacking case, so a relatively actually not that sophisticated computer hacking attack steals a small amount of names, addresses, personal identifiable information from a U.S. company with a trusted name where customers have given them that information. That guy asked for 500 bucks. He was an extremist from Kosovo, and he actually moved to Malaysia, he was 21, to get access to better ban uh, bandwidth, believe it or not, in part. And so using that better bandwidth, he then works with a fellow extremist in Kosovo. The two of them hack into this U.S. company, steal information that's entrusted to them, ask for 500 bucks through Bitcoin. So from the perspective of the company, if they don't work with government, it looks like a low-level uh, criminal computer hack for 500 bucks. But from Malaysia, he becomes friends with Junaid Hussein, that extremist from England who's moved to Raqqa, Syria, and they only meet through Twitter. They exchange direct messages. That's like half my friends I only know through Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. They may not be who they appear to be. Although in this case, I think- No, he, no they knew they who knew. they, they one, knew. one another exactly. were. <laughs> in this case, they did. And you see Junaid Hussein convince him, hey, pass over that information to me. And Junaid Hussein could care less about 500 bucks, right? What he wants to do is what the Islamic State does, which is kill with uh, and murder people Muslims and non-Muslims alike with impunity. At that time, they were bringing women and children into slavery, and they were using rape as a political tool. So instead of getting 500 bucks, what he does is take this information, personal information, entrusted to a U.S. company, turn it into a kill list by looking, looking for whose email address looks like their military or state police, and then pushes it back through Twitter and says, kill these people where they live. We were able to take effective action, and that's why I can go into so many details that were otherwise untold in the book, so that you can tell uh, we were able to work with the Malaysians through the State Department, get Farizi arrested, and he's serving 20 years in Virginia for his crime, the first time we charged computer hacking and terrorism in the same indictment. And Junaid Hussein was outside the reach of law enforcement in Raqqa, Syria, and was killed in a publicly acknowledged military strike by Central Command. But think about that, you know, Ben. When we're talking about the new uh, national security issue that we face, that's five or six different countries. It required sharing information at the speed and scale of cyber. And, and I think this is the challenge of our time, as hard as it was to get better at sharing information within and between governments, we cannot combat that threat unless we give information to the private sector uh, at the speed with which we're seeing it so they know what the risks are and can plan for them, and vice versa. We need the information from the private sector so we can do things like action, uh, military responses, law enforcement responses, diplomatic. And when it comes to that sharing and that transformation, we are not where we need to be. So is it fair to say that the defining feature of the full-blown Code War is that it hybridizes with other national security threats, that it requires net speed communications within the U.S. federal government between agencies and components, between the U.S. government components and foreign components, and between all of those components and the private sector? Yes, I think that is fair to say. And look, for a long period of time, this is part of the story I know you've covered before when we tell, but inside the Justice Department, you know, when I was a, a line computer hacking prosecutor, I worked with a great squad at the FBI, but we just did criminal cases. There was another squad behind a locked, secure, compartmented door that did intel. Occasionally, an agent would switch squads and poof, they disappeared, never to be seen again. And when I, even when I coordinated that program nationally on the criminal side, 
at the computer crime and intellectual property section, we still were not seeing what was occurring on the intelligence side. It wasn't until I went to work for Bob Mueller, who was then relatively anonymous and merely the director of the FBI, that the door opened and I was able to see what was going on on the intelligence side. And we didn't change approaches. And what I saw, by the way, was was horrifying, right? I saw it was great intelligence, uh, but there's giant jumbotron screen and you could watch in real time as China in particular would hop into places like universities, go from the university into companies. And then we watched what uh, Keith Alexander, former head of the National Security Agency, called the largest transfer of wealth in human history. We watched and had a great graphic user interface when I say watch. I mean, we really were watching billions and billions of dollars of intellectual property, trade secrets flow out of the United States. And so we were tasked with watching isn't good enough. That's not strategic success. It comes from an understandable mindset. I mean, for years, that was the approach when you were doing counterintel espionage operations because what you were seeing was, I think, at a small enough scale that you could map out operatives inside the United States. And for years on end, maybe forever, you wouldn't disrupt because that might make it harder to find where they, the spy network tried to penetrate next. Instead, you would wait, watch, pass them fake information, and it was part of a much slower speed cat and mouse game. Important, but a, diff a different way of tackling it. That mindset was still there, but it was totally inapplicable when it came to the scale that we were seeing with cyber. And the fact that it was causing real damage to real companies now is bankrupting people, putting people out of work. It had consequence, which meant we need to get better at disrupting it. And when you think about where, where we are today, it's still really recent that we switched to taking that attribution that we were doing out of the shadows because we were doing a much better job of it than people knew and, and having a new strategy where you figure out who did it, but then you make it public and impose consequence. And it wasn't until 2014 we brought the first case of its kind. So I'm going to get to that, but there's a huge amount in here that I want to unpack because th there's a lot of threads in the things you just said, and I want to start try to untangle them. So first of all, you're describing that the intel is much better than people think it is. And I want to, I want, just want to home in on that for a sec. It is pretty common to talk about an attribution problem. Uh, you have argued in the past, and we have seen some pretty dramatic examples, starting with the famed ugly gorilla indictment uh, of the PLA, which, which you call the PLA indictment, but will always be ugly gorilla to me, um, <laughs> that actually the attribution problem is at a forensic level very solvable. And so I want to start with that and just ask you, is the attribution problem solvable at scale or is it only solvable in the cases that are high profile enough and important enough and rich enough uh, that you know people in your former roles decide, okay, we got to throw everything at this one? In other words, and the reason I'm asking this is because it seems to me to matter a lot if you say, hey, if you're a hacker out there, we can get you, then to say, if you're Icarus and you fly too close to the sun as a hacker out there, you're not safe. Like, in other words, don't be, too, don't be too good at it or we'll get a drone after you or we'll arrest you or indict you. But if you're just a workaday guy stealing a lot of money, being cog in that giant wealth transfer um, and, you know, presumably siphoning off a little of the wealth yourself. We don't have a solution to that problem yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. At what level have we solved the attribution problem? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, maybe we'll break it into, into categories. So first, there was, a, uh, there was an assumption of a story. I met, I met a guy who, um, he used to work at CNN. Uh, now he's switched, uh, switched networks. And when you go to see a cyber hacking story, watch TV and look for the fingers. And he was the fingers on the keyboard. He just was someone working at the station. And so what they did is they videoed him typing at a, at a keyboard. And then every time they had a hacking story, it was this faceless person. And you just saw the fingers. Is there a hoodie? And with, with a shadowed hoodie <laughs> yeah, right exactly. in, the, in the background. They're still using that visual. And so 
until we changed, started changing this approach and naming people and also uh, changing the way we were investigating the cases, because when you're doing attribution for intelligence purposes, you don't necessarily need to get down to the face behind the keyboard, but when you're going to out them or bring a criminal charge, you do. So it required a change in the way that we were producing and analyzing the intelligence. And one uh, reason I go into the book, and they're just, first, they're just great stories when you look at exactly how uh, and the mistakes that people, uh, people were making and there are ways that people can learn uh, from how they do the attacks. Some of these attacks we've been seeing are done the same way for the last 20 years, can increase your ability to protect yourself. But also, it shows we are able uh, to get into that type of detail, do the attribution, and it is not true that you uh, need to remain a face faceless hacker. And it's true with lots of other types of crime as well, right? If you're, if you're a smart criminal, you try to keep yourself below the radar so no one's looking for you, which is part of the answer to your question. And so those are the crooks uh, that are hardest for us to catch. And those where, uh, who rise up above the radar and people complain about are the ones that get the most resources. So we're much better at attribu attribution than, than people think. And we're starting to make that clear by bringing case after case and making it public. You raise a second question, which I, I think is less than nation state activity um, and more the low level uh, crook. And a couple thoughts on that. One, increasingly, there is a massive organized criminal industry that's highly segmented, that's multi billion dollar uh, trade. You know, if you go on to the dark web today, uh, and, and literally could just give you the site you could go on and, uh, uh, right now. You can go to a site that looks just like Amazon. And when I say it looks just like Amazon, I mean, it's got five-star reviews. And so you can say, I want to buy stolen credit card numbers. And uh, there'll be a review that says, I've bought from this crook before. And the vast percentage of these work. He's a great crook. Uh, and then the, the ones I always love, there'll be a one-star review. And it'll say, I bought from this crook. And he's not trustworthy. And you're like, what did you expect? You're, you're buying <laughs> Joe Mark Rook. You're on Amazon for criminals. <laughs> he's an undercover FBI agent. <laughs> Which is a good way to deter. But uh, in fact, in one of these cases, a great justice case that was bought in the last year, the name of the group was literally In Fraud We Trust. That was the Excellent. motto. And, and you had to sign up. So I like the pairing of the word fraud and the pairing and the word trust. Yeah, I never know. And I think partly, you know, in terms of different tactics, just like we have with other criminal enterprises, by undermining that trust, increasing the degree of difficulty, showing that we do takedowns, it makes it harder and it will have less of a scale problem that we have now. And as you neck down the scale, then it becomes also easier and easier to apply resources. And we've had other seemingly intractable criminal problems where we've used that method before, and it doesn't happen immediately, but you end up seeing a sharp reduction in crime. Where it links with the, the nation state problem though, and we'll go back to that idea of the credit card thief, is let's use a case like the Yahoo case. There was an individual where he was on the top 10 most wanted list by the FBI for credit card fraud. And we tried to get cooperation from Russian law enforcement, just like we get with child pornography and other cases that really have nothing to do with nation state disputes. But everyone agrees, or uh, we thought, that crime, uh, certain types of crime are bad. So they asked, hey, can you help us arrest him? Here's, here's the evidence. Not only did they not arrest him, but they signed him up as an intelligence asset, said keep stealing, and also we're going to give you taskings for the state. I think right now our organized criminal problem is in large part a Russia problem. They are shielded. You look at case after case that's brought. People are arrested all over the world, but not in Russia in the same conspiracy. They are shielding and using organized crime as a way to make money as part of their uh, economy, a way to task for intelligence, and as a way to disrupt the world order. And until we work with like-minded partners to hammer them with increased costs for that behavior, we're not going to be able to solve this issue. So that's, just to be clear, not fundamentally, that response you're describing is not a cyber response, right? It's a, it's a Russia uh, needs to pay a price at, in the international, presumably economic and, and political space for its 
support and cooperation with uh, organized criminal groups, much the way we say, you know, Iran as a state sponsor of terror needs to be, to pay a price for that. That may not be, you don't do that by launching terrorist attacks against Iran, right? It's kind of a, um, but it's a, it's a using non-cyber assets to punish code war kind of behavior. Is that right? That's exactly right. So the way I think about it is you know, it's, it's fundamental to uh, having an, a, strate a strategic approach to attack your enemy where they're weak and you're strong. And the fact of the matter is we moved further and faster than any other country in the world to take everything we value from analog space, books and papers to digital space bits and bytes. And we did so systematically in government and in the private sector without calculating what the risks were if bad guys wanted to attack that information where it was now vulnerable because it uses a protocol, the internet protocol that was never designed with security in mind. So we are playing a massive game of catch up where people are just now, I think over the last couple of years in government and private sector, starting to think of this as an area of risk they need to manage, getting better educated on what those risks are and making rational decisions. So we are vo more vulnerable than other countries in that space. So to use an example, talk about uh, uh, you know, lived through with North Korea attacking Sony motion pictures Knocking North Korea offline is probably as many IP addresses as just the Brookings Institute alone has, right? Not going to be a fundamental deterrence to their uh, behavior. If you want to uh, attack them or impose consequences back to deter that type of behavior in the future, you need to instead focus where we're strong, which often is in the financial sector, they're weak to change behavior. All right. So let's talk about these indictments. Uh, when you guys brought the PLA indictment, and for those uh, who do not remember, this was the first case where we, and by we here, I mean you, uh, since you were the uh, Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the time, uh, named names of individual hackers working for foreign intelligence agencies to steal U.S. intellectual property. And uh, the indictment was an uncommonly good read um, just as a, as a matter of, uh, of, of prosecutorial storytelling about something, you know, how this operation had happened. It was. It followed um, uh, a pretty amazing bit of private sector forensic work on uh, what has uh, on by the Citizen Lab and you know uh, um, and you know other kind of private sector groups on on this particular advanced persistent threat. Um, and there was a lot of criticism of it, including from my lawfare colleague, Jack Goldsmith, which, you know, the nature of the criticism was, hey, you're never going to get custody of these people. You're giving up significant intelligence uh, secrecy in order to do this. It's not going to change Chinese behavior. And so other than sort of the U.S. government thumping its chest, what does it do? So I've been thinking about this debate, and you and Jack had a kind of uh, public back and forth about this. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot because, of course, you could make exactly the same criticism of Bob Mueller for the hacking indictment and the, the Internet uh, Research Agency social media indictment in the Russia investigation case, both of which we don't have custody over the people. It's presumably not going to, you know, Vladimir Putin's not going to say, oh, my God, they've prosecuted people. I, you know, I can't keep hacking people anymore. So I, we've now had a couple of year, few years of these indictments happening um, and the responses to them happening. And I'm interested for your thoughts on First of all, what is the history of this type of indictment so far? And what is the evidence that it does anything other than make us all feel good? 
So I think you're right, and then I'll back up, that that is where the Justice Department is now. They are moving full speed ahead with this approach that began with the or the first public indication was the indictment of those five members of Unit 61398, a specialized unit of the People's Liberation Army. You can say ugly gorilla. It went by the moniker ugly gorilla there <laughs> to make you uh, to make you happy. But that <laughs> my favorite part of that indictment. I always think too, I think... Uh, Former Director Comey talked talked about uh, Chinese economic espionage being so noisy it was like a gorilla going around your house. And in this case, that's literally what he called himself: <laughs> the ugly gorilla went around your house. So, uh, so you can draw a line from there to the Justice Department now continuing a strategy of figuring out who did it, making it public, and and seeking to use not just the criminal justice system, and I'll uh, I'll back up on that, but but not leaving the criminal justice system off the table and instead using in all tools of government power to raise the cost. And you see that not just with uh, the case that Director Mueller uh, brought in his role as special counsel, which I would argue is vital to uh, not just uh, whether or not we bring them before a court of law, but to educating us about what the threat was. And now you've seen that with a case that was moved from the special counsel to the National Security Division. The current deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, announced a new policy at the Justice Department, which said we are going to uh, – our, our policy presumption is – this is around September 25th – we're going to make public signs of in, election interference that we see before the election, then under seal out of the Eastern District of Virginia, not brought by the special counsel, was a case – that was returned in a complaint that said they that laid out how the Russians' activity wasn't just in the past, but charged someone with attempting to interfere in the 2018 election. This is the Elena Khusyanova case. Exactly. And that, that stra- strategic announcement that we're going to make it public and then follow, following through shows that they're committed to this approach. And let me back up on why I think it, that is the right thing to do. Yeah. So I, like I have no doubt that it exposes information. It puts stuff out there. It really like – I mean shows that there was this operation which has important – collateral domestic political effects since the president denies the premise, right? But I'm interested in it from a cybersecurity code war point of view. What does it get you? So one, and this is about bringing it out of the shadows. One, it educates those who need to protect these systems on what the threats are by giving it in real and credible detail. So when a company is trying to uh, figure out how much to budget on putting in uh, new systems to protect itself from cyber attack or, and in 2014, this was still very much the mindset, needs to move from a mindset of thinking, hey, if I just get the right IT guy, I don't understand what they say, but if they just get the right guy, they're going to fix this So uh, and keep the person out of my system, changing that mindset to one that recognizes there is no government or private sector system that can keep a dedicated adversary like the second largest military in the world out of your system. So you need to move more towards a risk management resilience mindset. By the way, a change that the government uh, needed to, to go through as well, which we saw in the Office of Personnel Management. So one, educating. Number two, I often use this uh, example for non-lawyers. You have uh, many lawyers who listen to your podcast, but think of an easement. So this is the idea in common law that if you let someone walk across your lawn long enough, they get the legal right to walk across your lawn. And that's why we put up no trespass signs. Well, international law is fundamentally a law of customary law. And while we were accepting the gorilla banging around the house where everybody could tell that it was China and they were stealing and weren't even hiding their tracks. I mean, they weren't even using proxies. They weren't even using servers that hid their identity, really. You knew it was coming from China when you were a company. As long as we were tolerating that, saying nothing, keeping it classified, keeping it in the intelligence space, we were making international law, doing nothing 
did something. It created international law that said it is okay to use your military and intelligence services, just like traditional spying services have been recognized under international law. It is okay to use them to target private companies for the benefit of their competitors overseas. And that's why facts matter. You look at that case, it's things like Westinghouse doing a joint venture. What the Chinese uniformed members of the military are stealing are not state secrets. They're stealing the technical design specifications for a lead pipe. So the next morning, the the joint venture partner no longer has to pay to do the lease. Or the solar company that that, uh, is in that case that got driven into bankruptcy because they stole the pricing information, used that stolen information to price dump. After they price dumped to add insult to injury when that company sued for unfair trade practices, they stole the whole litigation strategy. Private companies cannot deal with that type of threat uh, alone. And we put an attachment to show what that threat is. And what it was is those PLA members, this activity started nine in the morning, Beijing time. They get up, put the uniform on, go to work, hands on keyboard, start hacking into US companies to steal money from them essentially. And then they took a slight break from noon to one, lunch break. The activity increased again, decreased overnight and on Chinese holidays. That's both the prosecutor and me would call that circumstantial evidence as to who did it. But also it shows this really is the military's day job until we change the behavior. And then lastly, I I fundamentally believe you can change the behavior. This is a cost benefit analysis. And when we did nothing, of course, it was a good way, instead of spending funds on research and development, it was easier to steal it. Why not? It's completely cost-free. Can you imagine what the National Security Agency could do and other uh, of our professionals if as part of their mission, it did not matter if they got caught? That's a crazy way to try to change behavior in the world. And I'll, I'll say, we thought this was the beginning and it has been the beginning of a new approach I was surprised by how much of a difference one case, uh, that case, and then there's another case we talk about in the book that has really not been talked about before, which is the case of Su Bin. China knew, and we were taking all this criticism, and we weren't going to say it uh, publicly because we, we wanted, didn't want to interfere with the case, that this is just name and shame. You're never going to actually put people in jail. But China knew that we had. There was a case we had brought, an individual named Subin in Canada had been arrested pursuant to U.S. charges for a conspiracy to hack into Boeing and uh, other companies. So China knew there were real teeth and real criminal charges. And in fact, they tried to pressure Canada to release him. Canada stayed strong, extradited him, and, and he's done real uh, jail time. I think that case plus Subin plus the president raising it repeatedly diplomatically and the new executive order and sanctions, which we can talk with a little bit uh, more, convinced China that the cost was getting too high and led to a breakthrough where President Xi agreed that you shouldn't use your military and intelligence uh, agencies to target private companies for your private financial gain. And that led to the G20 adopted adopting it. It led to it now being understood as part of international law. And we did see, and this still surprises me that it happened so quickly for a period of time, a change in behavior where we saw a decrease in that particular type of attack. Both the private sector saw it, CrowdStrike, Mandiant, those firms in that space, and in government, a decrease in the behavior. Now, it seems to be ticking back up again, which to me doesn't show that you shouldn't raise costs. It shows that we're going to need to raise costs again. Or maybe it shows that if you have presidential leadership that really uh, not merely takes its eye off of this particular ball, but denies the premise that foreign adversaries are in fact attacking us, that they feel a certain relief from the pressure. We absolutely need leadership from the commander in chief on down for this strategy to work that says, we know you're doing it and it's unacceptable. And that message has to be each each country, you can't look at this as a China problem or a Russia problem or Iran or North Korea. That's why I call it a code war. They're each watching what the other is doing, and so are all the other next-level players who are developing capability in this space. Every action we take needs to be calibrated with the understanding that it's going to inform how hundreds of other countries use these new tools. 
when you observe that it's ticking back up now and you say that, that that's evidence that we sort of need to do it again, what's the it here? Is it merely bringing in a bunch of new cases or is or is the it a consistent message between new cases and you know highest level and mid level diplomacy that this is a priority issue for us like what's the relationship between cases and diplomacy here a great point it needs to be a coherent strategy so the way i'd look at the all tools approach would be the excellent work that is done by FBI agents, intel analysts, and others to figure out who did it feeds the tools of the rest of the apparatus. And by the way, for that work to occur, you need the cooperation of the private sector. So you figure out who did it, your case. Then the criminal justice system is still one great tool for making public what it is that you found. It is not the only tool. It's not the method that was used, for instance, in the North, originally in the North Korean attack on Sony, the criminal case came much uh, much later. So there are other ways to make it public. Then it can feed things like the Commerce Department's use of the entity list to designate certain uh, companies as ones for whom, if you do business, you need a special license because it's contrary to the national security interests of the United States. We saw the power of that tool with uh, when it was applied to ZTE. Also, uh, we, we mentioned briefly with the executive order that President Obama signed, which was the first time we had a executive order that allowed the use of sanctions, not just for those who steal the information, like those uniformed members of the People's Liberation Army, but importantly, for the companies or individuals that benefited from that stolen information. President Trump has re-signed uh, that executive order, so it's still in place, just like we have with those who proliferate weapons of mass destruction, or terrorism. So that's another potential tool. And it has to be calibrated, calibrated with a diplomatic strategy where it is clear, one, that we have the will and the capability to keep raising the cost proportionally. We are going to do that until the behavior changes. And two, the off-ramp, that if the behavior changes, so will the policy so that our adversary can make the cost-benefit analysis. Now, not every country is going to be as rational an actor, but I believe uh, when it comes to China in this space, they very much are a rational actor. Their end strategic goal is not to blow up the world uh, order, international order. They want to succeed in it. And so if you uh, can convince them rationally, which requires taking action, to change that calculus, it can change. Talk to me about the private sector. A few number of weeks ago, I had some people from Google in this podcast studio chatting about their advanced protection uh, program, which, um, as you know, is a a sort of elaborate, a a much more elaborate set of anti-phishing protections uh, designed to protect the most uh, the most highly targeted potential users, uh, people who are really kind of facing state actor level uh, efforts. Um, my reaction on talking to them was, you know, gosh, this should be basically standard. It should be, you know, every 13-year-old who has a uh, a uh, Gmail account or a Facebook account or a Twitter account should have should just get used to the idea that a uh, like logging login procedure is not simple. It's a um, we all just need to get used to the idea that uh, these are assets that we need to uh, you know that securing requires a measure of inconvenience and this level of inconvenience is actually not all that bad it was i i actually don't mind it at all i'm wondering which private sector entities by name or by category in your judgment are doing good job a good job here and where the locus of the problem remains. Well, look, the, the uh, 
still finding when I talk to Fortune 500 companies that they're wrestling with this new concept that uh, that this is an area of risk management like other areas of risk risk management. I remember uh, one of the stories to tell in the book is about after the Office of Personnel Management that the president of the United States tried to hold have his cabinet meet, uh, and the first two times the cabinet officials sent their experts, you know, uh, instead of going. So for Justice Department, you know, the Attorney General wanted to send me and the Chief Information Officer. And the third time, they got a uh, sternly worded email from the Chief of Staff and the Homeland uh, Advisor that said, you can bring whoever you want, but you got to show up because if you don't understand it as the top executive in language that you understand, you can't make what are fundamentally risk decisions. And that includes not just, uh, you know, kind of what you were raising, Ben, the, the latest and greatest in security, but decisions as to what should be connected to the internet at all. And boy, it is a vital time to have this conversation because as bad as the risks and vulnerabilities that we are facing are right now as we play catch up, we're on the cusp of a major societal transformation where we are moving to what is the buzzword, the internet of things. But essentially, we are connecting billions of new devices that are have physical implications using the same insecure protocol. And that includes pacemakers that have gone into people's hearts. And what they did is they tested to see whether it worked. It worked great. What they didn't test is to see, would it work if a bad guy, a crook, a terrorist, or a spy didn't want it to work? And what they realized was, no, we didn't do basic uh, protection so an 11-year-old using publicly available software could hack and kill. And then a patch was rolled out. And we saw something similar with a, a, a vulnerability where you could hack in through the entertainment system and take over the braking and steering system of our cars. So whether it's the pacemakers in our hearts, the cars on our roads, the drones that are increasingly in our skies, if we don't incentivize people now to innovate into having security by design on the front end, the damage that we see won't be measured in billions of dollars, but it's going to be measured in lost lives. Who's doing it well? I'd say, you know, the, you're starting to see uh, in the def couple different sectors. The financial sector, uh, in part, because the cases talk about the Iranian distributed denial of service attacks that hit 47 different financial institutions over a period of time was a real wake-up call to the sector plus regulators, and they have the funds. Um, but I think they've taken good steps to not just protect their system, but focus on resilience um, and they have a program called Financial Sector ARC uh, that's working on what would happen if no matter how much we've spent on trying to protect the worst from happening, it happens. What could we do to get back up and running again with something that's not otherwise connected? So financial sector, you're starting to see now a big change in the defense industrial base in terms of how products are designed. And in the automotive sector post that, Recalls, I think some companies have started to blend what used to be two separate segments, the cybersecurity information technology segment into the design segment so that they are thinking about these security issues from the front end. But there's a lot left to do. Uh, one more question, then I'll let you go. As you look forward at these five countries that you've identified as as critical here and you think about the things we are doing the things we've tried that haven't worked the things we've tried that have worked and the things we haven't tried at all that are available to us to try what's the low hanging fruit what's the what's the 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 single thing that the US government isn't doing that it could do that has the biggest impact in the code war? I'll give four. One, Internet of Things. We need right now to, and the government needs to lead by microphone, by law, by regulation, 
to incentivize companies to build security in on the front end. Number two, cybersecurity workforce gap. That should be something that cuts across party. Uh, through the Aspen Institute, we've laid out a, a plan to fix it, but hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs uh, need to be addressed and can be. So it helps helps people get work and helps tackle, tackle the problem technically. So Internet of Things, cybersecurity uh, workforce. Number three, sharing. There's no excuse for not having essentially a cyber 911. Everyone should know where to call when they've been the victim of a crime, and it should go to one place that gets fed then to the appropriate agency. So we need to do better on sharing information with the government. And lastly, deterrence. We need to work with partners uh, around the world so that when we do great work identifying something like NotPetya, a ransom worm that caused a global shipping company $500 million worth of damage, that caused FedEx $300 million worth of damage, that they face penalties that are commensurate to the crime. The book is Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. My guest has been John Carlin. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Check out our new store online, the only place to get Lawfare mugs, Lawfare t-shirts, Lawfare onesies, and the Lawfare challenge coin at www.thelawfarestore.com. If you haven't yet, please take a second to share the Lawfare podcast on Facebook or Twitter and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.